Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, He Put His Hands on Her. The Compassion of Jesus Meets the Hypocrisy of Religion. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 22nd, 2010. Back in 2005, when I was in Ethiopia, I took a trip to the mountains that surround the capital city of Addis Ababa. At the summit, our group prayed over the city, enjoyed the panoramic views, identified buildings in the far distance below, and gasped for breath after walking uphill in the alpine air. That was the fun part. The disturbing part of that day trip was our climb from the city center at 7,000 feet to the summit at 11,000 feet. As our minivan belched clouds of light blue exhaust, the higher we went, the more women and girls we passed carrying loads of firewood back down the mountain. Barefoot and bent over at the waist, these women carried 75-pound bundles of eucalyptus saplings, seven feet wide, down to the city center about 10 miles away, all for a few pennies. The firewood carriers in Addis Ababa are a common sight, so much so that you can read about them in guidebooks like The Lonely Planet. Ever since that trip in 2005, the firewood carriers of Addis Ababa have reminded me of the crippled woman in Luke's Gospel for this week, Luke 13, 10-17. Luke is the only Gospel to tell this story. It's the last time in his Gospel that Jesus enters a synagogue to teach. Luke writes that the woman had been, quote, crippled by a spirit for 18 years and as a consequence was bent over and could not straighten up at all. In Addis Ababa, I kept wishing that those women and girls who were bent over and could not straighten up at all could be freed from their bondage. Making a medical diagnosis 2,000 years after the fact is futile. Maybe the woman in Luke had a form of scoliosis, Others speculate about some type of spinal ossification or fusion. Perhaps she suffered an injury. I wonder if she was just plain worn out from a hard life of manual labor. Like the firewood carriers in Addis Ababa, her condition reflected the complex interplay of vicious causes and consequences, medical infirmity, community indifference, social marginalization, economic injustice, oppressive gender roles, and even religious blame. We can imagine religious zealots saying, don't complain, your suffering is punishment for your sins. Whatever her condition, her prognosis was bleak. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Luke, a physician by training, writes that she was, quote, crippled by a spirit. Jesus describes her as bound by Satan for 18 long years, 
I can easily imagine my own self as a spiritual cripple if I had physically suffered like she had. Though to the totality of her human degradation was greater than her medical ailment. For those who dismiss that diagnosis as a pious and pre-scientific myth, I can only say that it's just the sort of, sort of thought you have when you see a barefoot 10-year-old girl beneath a 75-pound load of firewood working like a farm animal. You think she's suffering a condition of spiritual darkness in bondage. She herself isn't evil, of course, but her condition is. There's something here even worse than economic exploitation. Interestingly enough, neither Luke's nameless woman, her family, nor any of her friends asked Jesus to heal her. She probably didn't know Jesus and maybe had never even heard of him. I picture her going to the synagogue with her familiar routine of doing everything possible to avoid drawing attention to herself. No doubt she kept to herself and kept out of harm's way in the back of the synagogue. After 18 years of chronic disabilities, she knew her place. But Jesus did not leave her to herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her to come forward. Watching her shuffle forward, her contorted body bent to the ground, must have felt like an excruciating eternity, like watching an accident in slow motion. I wonder what she felt and thought in the hushed silence with all those eyes on her. In front of the crowd, Jesus did something that I'm sure no one had done to her for a very long time something that violated the gender taboos of the day. Luke writes, He put his hands on her. And then he said, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Freed from physical and spiritual bondage, we read, She immediately straightened up and praised God. This miracle of divine compassion provoked an outburst of religious hypocrisy. The ruler of the synagogue was indignant. Maybe he didn't like his neat and proper service upset. Maybe he had tried and failed to help this same woman in his own way. Or perhaps he felt upstaged by Jesus. Whatever ignited his anger, he cloaked his feelings in terms of religious zeal. Afraid to confront Jesus directly, he complained to the crowd that Jesus had violated the fourth commandment by working on the Sabbath. Couldn't the woman in Jesus have waited just one day when the Sabbath would be over? Come and be healed on those days, he raged, not on the Sabbath. Jesus exploded at their sanctimony, their human callousness, in their theological hair-splitting. You hypocrites, he said. Human compassion, healing, and wholeness are far more important than religious ritual and misplaced zeal. Besides, said Jesus, their own rabbis had determined that brute beasts depended on them for a drink of water. 
Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? If it's not only permissible but necessary to water an animal on the Sabbath, then must not this woman, says Jesus, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? No, said Jesus, divine mercy would not wait one more day to heal a fellow human being. Isaiah's text in chapter 58 for this week teaches the same lesson about fasting that Luke does about Sabbath keeping. Isaiah 58 satirizes religious zealots who, quote, seem eager to know my ways, they ask for just decisions, and seem eager for God to come near to them, Isaiah 58, 2. But in this case, appearances were deceiving. These people fasted and prayed, said Isaiah, but turned around and exploited their workers. They quarreled and fought. Isaiah says that fasting is more important, says that fasting is more than abstaining from food. Fasting is not the absence of nutrition, but the presence of justice. And in his famous words in chapter 58, 6, and 7, we read, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Abstaining from food profits nothing, says Isaiah, when we abstain from mercy and justice. When religious rituals like Sabbath keeping and fasting, or to update it, our own Bible studies, sermons, church attendance, and retreats, when these are divorced from human health and wholeness, whenever a believer turns away from your own flesh and blood, Isaiah 58, 7, then our religion has gone very bad indeed. But on the other hand, when you care for your neighbor like you would care for your own self, you fulfill the deepest purposes of all religious ritual. For books this week, I review Kevin Roos, The Unlikely Disciple, A Sinner's Semester at America's Holiest University, New York Grand Central Publishing, 2009, 324 pages. Kevin Roos was a sophomore at Brown University when he decided to spend what he calls a domestic study abroad at Jerry Falwell's Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Raised in a politically liberal and religiously Quaker home, he knew that what he calls a tree-hugging brown student isn't supposed to be able to talk to a Bible-thumping Liberty student. But very much to his credit, he asked, why not? 
It didn't sit well with him that he was part of the 51% of Americans who didn't even know an evangelical Christian. So despite the shock and fears of family and friends, he spent the spring semester of 2007 at Liberty University, taking a full load of six classes, living in the dorm with two roommates, singing in the choir of Thomas Road Baptist Church, attending prayer groups, dating, and participating in Friday night Bible studies. This book tells that story. There are no cheap shots in this book. Roos hid his plans about writing the book, but otherwise participated fully in his new life with an open mind. He gives much credit whenever he thinks it is due. The girls were gorgeous, he says, and he actually loved the strict dating rules because when sex was taken off the table, he felt more authentic than manipulative. He describes Liberty students as friendly, well-adjusted, articulate, and nothing like the stereotype of angry zealots. Of course, there were renegade nonconformists at Liberty, and he introduces us to them in their antics, like naked skateboarding in the dorm. He was pleasantly surprised to learn that many students at Liberty have doubts and freely express them. Nor does Roos pull any punches. <clears throat> he was mystified at his History of Life course in which a genuinely qualified scientist taught young earth creationism. He concluded that Liberty's academic process is conflicted and compartmentalized, and in fact the students complain about this. He participated but disliked cold turkey, cold turkey evangelism in Daytona Beach over spring break. He introduces us to the student handbook with its legalistic code of reprimands and even financial fines. The overt homophobia bothered him deeply. Roos thought that his biggest challenge at Liberty would be all the people who rubbed him the wrong way. So he was surprised to find himself genuinely caring about new friends and having an honestly good time. He loved the feeling of being prayed for. Although he didn't convert in the liberty sense of that word, he felt the spiritual, emotional, and intellectual grounds shift beneath him. He concluded that there's a big difference between the students at liberty and the university's so-called core ideology. With few exceptions, human decency triumphed over hardline dogmatism. One of the most humanizing things I learned this semester, he writes, is that even at liberty, personality triumphs over ideology. Instead of seeing a unified whole, he came to appreciate a range of complex nuances. The best part about this book is how it challenges the mutual paranoia of social groups that trade in stereotypes based upon lack of exposure to each other's stories. The author is Kevin Roos. The title of the book, The Unlikely Disciple, A Sinner's Semester at America's Holiest University. For films this week, I review a movie called A Finished Life, The Goodbye, No Regrets Tour, 
from 2008. <clears throat> Greg Gower, 1957-2006, had been HI positive for 24 years, half of his life, when he decided to stop taking his medications. The medications had been su successful, in fact, so that he had never been sick from the disease. But he was sick of the cure, sick of the horrible side effects of the drugs, and so he made an active choice to end his life on his own terms. This documentary film follows Greg on his cross-country road trip in an RV to meet with family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, and classmates in the last six months of his life. These are occasions not only for laughter, love, and tears, but also for exploring the wisdom and goodness of his decision. Although firm in his decision to end his own life, even he wonders if his choice is somehow selfish. But having watched and helped many of his friends die of AIDS, Greg decided that after he passed below a certain threshold of health, he would hasten his own death through assisted suicide instead of die a horrendous death that he had witnessed many times before. A strikingly handsome and congenitally cheerful man, Greg declares in the final minutes of the film, I've lived a complete life, a finished life. The title of the film, A Finished Life, The Goodbye and No Regrets Tour, from 2008. <clears throat> and finally for this week, we've posted a poem by an Israeli poet, Yehuda Amachai. Amachai is considered by many, both in Israel and internationally, as Israel's greatest modern poet. The title of his poem, The Place Where We Are Right, Yehuda Amachai. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Yehuda Amachai, the place where we are right. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August 22nd, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.